This year, we're celebrating 20 years of Glass Tire. That means 20 years of Texas art coverage, 20 years of publishing writing from across the state, and 20 years of showing the world all Texas has to offer. Since our publication is a nonprofit, all of our work is made possible thanks to readers and listeners like you. If you'd like to help support our coverage, you can make a one-time gift or become a sustaining donor by visiting glasstar.com forward slash donate. Also, if you enjoy our podcast, please consider subscribing and leaving us a rating or a review. Thanks for listening and enjoy today's show. Hello and welcome to Art Dirt. This is a podcast where we at Glass Tire talk about topical art topics. I'm Brandon Zeck. I'm Christina Reese. And this week we actually have uh, two stories for you. The first broke at the end of September and there's been a lot of press around it since, but it's an artist who quote unquote stole money from a museum in Denmark. Um, We'll dig more into what that means in a second. And the second topic is inspired by a David Hockney op-ed in the art newspaper, which is uh, an art publication based in London. They cover art across the world. And it's David Hockney proclaiming, quote, abstraction in art has run its course. So we'll talk about abstraction, the recent kind of trend towards figuration, what all of that means. And I'm sure Christina will solve it by the end of this podcast. And oh, we'll of course. Of course we will. <laughs> put a nice tidy bow on it and come out with an answer. Um but first, uh, we're going to talk about the story of Jans Hanning, um, who was commissioned by the Kunsten Museum of Modern Art in Denmark to create an, uh, a piece or recreate a piece from 2007 and 2010 um, that displays the yearly incomes of a Dane and an Austrian. That's kind of the concept behind the piece. It's bills, it's real money that is framed or stuck on a canvas and uh, shows those incomes just so that people can physically visualize it. Um, So in order to make that happen, the Kunsten Museum of Modern Art in Denmark, uh, from my impression, the impression that I get is they loaned this artist um, $83,000 in order to make this piece happen. Again, it's a recreation of a piece from 2007 and from 2010. And the artist... Uh, was supposed to deliver the piece to the show, which the exhibition is about work and labor and payment and money. Um, so the artist was supposed to deliver this piece. Instead, the artist changed the title of the piece to, uh, what was it, Christina? Um, it's titled Take the Money and Run. Yeah, so that basically explains what the this artist did. So he delivered two empty frames, two blank canvases, and uh, in an interview to... Uh, like a a news station, he said that um, he did not steal the money. Quote, it's not theft. It's a breach of contract and a breach of contract is part of the work. So part of the backstory behind this also is that apparently the museum um, gave him 25,000 kroner or like 
almost $4,000 in order to recreate the work. He also said that it would be about that same amount to recreate the work and said he would actually have to pay to recreate the work. And then the New York Times says that his um, commission for the piece, you know, his artist fee was going to be around $1,600 plus expenses. Um, so there's a couple numbers being thrown around. The, the nut of it, though, is that the museum was not going to pay him $83,000 to create this work. And it seems that no one explicitly says this in any of their reporting, but it seems like the museum was going to loan him that money to create the work. And then the museum was going to reclaim the money from the artwork. That's the impression that I got, at least. That's the impression I get, too. And I was digging around to see where was the money meant to ultimately end up, like back with the museum and that they need the money for their bottom line. Um because, I mean, if these are finished artworks, I guess that meant that it should have been built into the contract and must have been that the work would be disassembled after the show. Um, in which case, it is theft. I mean, let's just say, I mean, a breach of contract can be a theft. Um, that can be what the breach of contract is. So, And he's just doing, he's doing a kind of what would almost be at this point a typical, if you could say that there's something typical about an avant-garde move, it's not something that happens a whole lot recently. It's one of the reasons that there's a lot of headlines about this is because this is kind of one of these old school conceptual art moves that might have happened a lot in the 60s, the 70s, again, maybe in the 90s and in the very early aughts, but not lately. Um, there's a tradition of artists, you know, screwing around with ideas about money, labor, institutions, um, wealth, wealth disparity, and also very much about how artists don't get paid enough for their labor. They're, you know, the art itself is valued, valued, valued. Collectors and museums and institutions and auction houses can make millions and millions of dollars off of, off of an artist when they're making almost no money. So he's got a, there's a kind of a very self-righteous bent to what he's doing. I'm not sure that there's much of a history of institutions being really financially hurt by an artist doing this, mostly the history of this kind of money art, and there, we'll leave a, a history of it in the in the reading list. It's really individual artists burning their own money, hurting their own money, or or um, uh, examining and bringing to light how little money they have um, within this system, or kind of taking smaller stipends from museums and doing interesting and odd things that they weren't didn't necessarily promise to do with it like christina one of the questions is i completely agree i haven't really found a history of any institution being financially impacted by something like this but at the same time this institution you know it's a museum in denmark there's i would imagine there is a, a different level of state support of art than we have here in the states but at the same time eighty three thousand dollars is a lot of money. It's not like he, you know, took $4,000 that he was supposed to do something with and did something different with it or just took the 4,000. Like I could see a museum, you know, trying to make a commitment to help this artist realize his work and loaning him $83,000 so that it could happen, but then I I don't know. I feel like $83,000 could actually impact a museum's bottom line this also this isn't the largest museum in denmark or anything it's it seems kind of like a more regional museum right so imagine what would happen if lawndale or um 
the cam or Dallas Contemporary just suddenly lost $83,000. You know, what does that do to their programming? What does that do to the other artists' work who are commissioned to do work later? Does it tank the museum? I probably won't take this museum. And also, you know, being a Scandinavian, they've been very gracious about it thus far. They put the artwork in the show. They've honored it as a piece. And they're also saying, you know, when the show comes down, you need to give us our money back. And he's saying, I'm not going to do that. Well, it seems like Christina, okay, you mentioned that they put it in the show i was going to bring that up because in some ways it seems like they're kind of trying to have it both ways now this is you know i feel like you and i are both we kind of see both ways on this it's like you and i both yeah we both love artists getting paid and we both love kind of like groundbreaking institutional critique type things sure Um, when it works yeah but the thing is the museum put the blank empty frames in the show and they're uh, by doing that to me at least they're like they're acknowledging that the piece is a piece and if the artist is saying it's not theft and it's a breach of contract and i i don't know maybe maybe to them acknowledging the piece doesn't equate to them agreeing with it which i could understand but in a way to me it almost I don't know. I see kind of an inextricable link between being like, oh, yes, this piece is existing and we acknowledge that it's working and et cetera, et cetera. And then the counterpoint of them being like, but you did breach the contract and that's illegal and we might take financial action if you don't return the money. I can see. I mean, I'm with you and I still see it both ways um, in that they could acknowledge that the piece exists and that this is what they did this is what this particular artist did with this commission they may not like it i don't know how advanced or nuanced the conversations are about art in that community or in that museum or in that museum's community but (laughs) i certainly sympathize with them and they may have felt that uh, certainly also for what he's known for is this kind of um institutional critique and Uh, ideas around exploitation and labor they may have felt like if they hadn't put it up that it would have been a bigger shitstorm for them than if they had um they also got a lot of publicity out of this so i don't know how jaded they are i didn't read jadedness into their decision to show the work but um i see as jadedness in him but i don't want to ascribe intention to him um, this is going a little further than what, I mean, this is an established artist. He has shown worldwide. He's been, he's been, you know, commissioned by creative time. He's shown and documented. This is not some new dude who's coming out with his pirate tactics. You know, that money being in Scandinavia, a lot of it probably is state money. Um, so it's hard to know who he's even stealing from, who is he exploiting by taking this money? Um, whose labor has he shit on essentially? Um, let's look at that. Uh, so I don't know. It feels like a publicity stunt that both of them have kind of ridden a little bit. The, the, the publicity, you mentioned it, but I mean, it's everything from of course the art publications have gotten in on it and we're getting in on it right now but um the new york times the washington post but even like i found a video of like a 45 second tv spot from like a tennessee local news station like it's just you know i don't even know if they mentioned the artist's name during the spot i i watched it really briefly but it's kind of one of those things where 
it's it's a perfect it's a perfect little like funny story of like an artist in Denmark like stole this money from a museum and say is saying it's an artwork. It's like a viral artwork. Well, this is this all just goes down into, you know, what happens when these these concepts that have been swirling around in in the avant-garde art world for decades and decades, um, really actually since Duchamp came on the scene, when this stuff hits the mainstream, especially through social media and 24-hour news and stuff, all the nuance goes away. And the easiest way to talk about it is this, this artist stole some work. Um, I don't think that's where we are when we're having conversations about this. But, you know, it, it certainly is the thing that gives it all of this uh, publicity. I think that um, a much more nuanced conversation is that he decided it somehow that his the work that he had promised them is less valuable than the work that he ultimately gave them. And he got to decide that. He got to decide that on taxpayer money. Um, This is the kind of thing that makes taxpayers angry in the United States. I don't know if Scandinavians are a little bit more chill about that. I think they are. Um, But this is the kind of thing that gets gets artists into hot water and it gives them a really bad name. Um, these are just social, these are just social conditions that we're dealing with right now. I mean, it's like, I can see a whole lot of sort of more conservative people being like, yeah, that's what artists are like. They're all just like tricksters and blah, blah, blah. I don't, you know, uh, we'll see if he gives the money back. We'll see if he gives us money back. And again, to me, it's like, it sounds to me like they were going to disassemble the work. And if he had already agreed to that, then he had agreed to it. I mean, you know, I, I don't know if th- this is probably not going to make this particular institution scared of dealing with artists in the future. I hate to think that there are some local or regional, you know, uh, Kunsthalles across uh, everywhere, Europe and the United States, that would be a little bit more wary about just giving an artist a, a big uh, account to work on art and that they would now feel justified in running away with that. I don't think artists have that kind of group think, so I don't think that this is going to start a spate of thefts. But it is an interesting uh, conversation to have right now. I don't have answers for it, by the way. Oh, no. I mean, neither one of us do. Well, I, I think, you know, I would be interested to know if the if he was really trying to start any sort of conversation about artists and payment and uh, the kind of things that are coming up because in some of his interviews um, I'm talking about Hanning the artist um, he mentions you know he's he goes farther than artists and he's just like if you are if you just the person hearing this are in a like an unjust situation or like a crappy job like just take what you can and leave which is you know that's it's one way to deal with it I I also think it's interesting him um making this statement in Denmark again thinking about the funding that happens like it's the type of thing that I feel like is inherently like I I could see in the U.S. of an artist being like railing against the capitalist system um but you know in, in Europe kind of the state support of art and the way that museums do things is a little different so I think it's interesting that he's making this statement in a museum um in Denmark I think Part of it could very well be that a museum in <laughs> another part of the world might oversee the fabrication and not deliver that money directly to the artist to, to allow the fabrication. So maybe it's it is a product of its uh, situation in place. 
So to me, this feels like a crime of opportunity. There was an institution trusting enough of him and his reputation to give him this money. If he had wanted to be really much more precise about it, I'm going to use the word rigorous, he would have gamed the system in the United States and gotten a museum with very wealthy board members to front him this money, and then he would have walked away with it. I'm not sure his message has quite the impact uh, that it could have had if he had been a little bit more strategic. Well, because the headline of this is going to always be artist takes money from museum, and the headline isn't going to be artist makes interesting statement about the plight of underpaid workers and communities by taking art by taking money from museum. That's not, that's never going to be the headline. One of the things I thought when I read this at first is I was like, I'm just going to get real human for a second. And I was like, this guy's had a really bad year. <laughs> yeah. He's just had a bad year. We've all had a bad year. We're all a little nuts. Um, he may have had a dip in income. He may be desperate. I mean, you could turn this into a movie. He turns around and, it's like he spends it to, you know, pay for a kidney transplant or something like that. You don't, you don't need that in Denmark. They just give you the kidney. But um, again, I feel like this, this, this would have hit harder and gotten more support and made the, a better conversation and better headlines if he had done this in a, in a more, um, in the, here, basically in the United States. Um, well, being as also he's not expected to return the money until the show is over, you know, it kind of gets to have its press and run and it's very likely that, you know, the piece that is part of the piece as he as he says that the breach in contract is part of the artwork, maybe him returning it at the end is part of the artwork and temporary temporarily stealing the money. Um, I would love to think that he takes that money and invests it in a really uh, high yield account for four months and walks away with the profits afterwards. That's that's like an appealing, weird, conceptual thing. That but then what does he do with those profits? Because the artwork isn't necessarily over. I mean, if he declares it over, he's just going to walk away with $80,000 plus and spend it on whatever. It's kind of It just kind of turns into a black hole. But then that's okay. If that's the art, that's the art. I'm not telling this guy what his art is. But we really don't know what the finished product is until the end of January. And we see if he does return the money and we see if they do press charges. We see if he does go to trial. We see if he does end up in jail. Well, because if the breach of contract is part of the art, I mean, isn't the litigation part of the art if that happens? Like that's part of the art. I mean, he may be chasing that. He may be chasing that. This may be a very long game for him. And, um, and he may be ready for that. I don't know. We'll see. And I'll, I'll, we'll keep an eye on it. I, uh, if I mean, we'd be talking about this a whole lot more if he had managed to steal a million plus. Um, certainly, we know that galleries have been, um, I don't want to use the word had, but, you know, galleries have struggled to get Jeff Koons to deliver on massive commissions before. You know, um, fronting artist money uh in advance of them delivering has been, has been a dangerous game for a really long time. And that's, that's true even on local levels. And, you know, when I was a dealer in, in Dallas, I saw, you know, elements of this take place when artists are very slow to make work, when they have nervous breakdowns in the middle of making their work, and then they just don't deliver work that sometimes has already been sold. 
um, to collectors who are waiting for it. But there is a long history of that, and that's that's a conversation we could have in another art dirt. But I see him as just, right now, he's just kind of tra- chasing his own legacy, and, and we'll have to see how it plays out. With that, you want to go to our second topic about the death of abstraction? Yeah, so <laughs> let, me, let me just very briefly kind of reintroduce this. David Hockney... Is, has been throughout the later part of his life really good at thinking very, very deeply about contemporary art and and historical art and how it all ties together. And I love this. And he and it's a way that he keeps his mind going and um, keeps conversation flowing. It was around 1995 that he declared painting dead, which was an interesting thing. He's not the first person to do it, but he was he was the most prominent painter to come out and say it and it had an effect I mean these are when I was finishing school and um, artists were emerging from University of North Texas um, there was a chill on painting there was this sense that painting and illustration and drawing and all these things were kind of old and over and that it was now all about conceptual stuff and um so people can take his pronouncements very, very seriously. I think what he's saying here is so much more nuanced than abstraction is dead. He's really talking about an aesthetic that has social implications, and it's about sort of use of the shadow and how human brains interpret the world around them and what they see versus what is photograph- what, what is photographed or what is photographically possible. Uh, what a lens picks up versus what the human mind picks up and interprets. He he brings impressionism into it, um, impressionism as a response to the kind of the European traditions of heavy um, shadowing and molding and uh, you know neoclassical art. And uh, there's no way. Let's just make it clear. David Hockney, of all people, is not saying that abstract painting is dead. He's saying something else. However because that's what he said, um, we can just deal with it on that level. Is that what you would like to do? I mean, yeah. Well, I, I definitely don't want to lose any of the complexity in the conversation. And, I mean, declaring something dead is always just an over-exaggeration, especially in art where everything is going to be reinvented or come back around or, you know, all, all of that. But I feel like it this piece by him uh, talking about abstraction in this way has been a long time coming in the sense that a lot of people that I've talked to recently, dealers, art consultants, you know, people who are working in kind of the real buying and selling of art have talked about a real return to figuration that's been coming over the past couple years, but has been really strong maybe in the last two years particularly. Um, and I think that's an interesting to consider interesting thing to consider in part because I mean you can't ignore the pandemic in that time frame and maybe what it says about our desire to actually have something physical and tangible or about our ability to recognize things like figuration in buying and selling art online versus abstraction where something like you know a surface is so important or there's kind of all of these considerations that I think are just kind of make up their little like Lego pieces that make up the whole well I mean, a lot of this comes down to identity politics and its infiltration into the art world. And 
the idea, especially for younger artists, newer artists, emerging artists, you know, one of the fastest ways to get your point across is to make something that people recognize, um, uh, meaning figures, people, humans, uh, bi- biographical and autobiographical art that shows people in their situations. Um, there's no doubt that this has been by far the most dominant art form of the last several years. Um, to me, uh, it, it's happening to some degree at the expense of artists who may be young and emerging and coming up who might want to do something that's not quite that straightforward. Um, and if they feel like even exploring abstraction is becoming a problem for them because they're not getting any encouragement or support for it because they're being sort of um, expected to make work that has a more kind of didactic meaning, I worry a little bit about that. You know, I always worry about artists feeling like they've got the freedom to make what they want to make. There's been a certain kind of explosion of art from a lot of different communities that have just not gotten the attention that they have deserved. And the fastest way for them to deliver a lot of message very, very quickly, individual artists and collectives of artists, is to make figurative work that is that is very recognizable and very easy to engage with and emotionally engaging. Um, abstraction can really get very, very far away from that. It can be about much headier ideas. These, I, these, it can be about purely aesthetics. It can also be very social and very political. And it's, you know, it's Hockney was actually very, um, dismissive of American Abex in that, uh, article. Um, it's almost like he kind of he kind of just got away from the all the Europeans who came to New York after World War II and made a lot of abstraction for very social and political reasons. Um, abstract art can be political. Um, I I think that uh, this return to figuration has been both good and bad. I think it's ultimately it's quite conservative. Um, it's uh, it's a little narrower than it probably should be. You see the more veteran artists um, sort of going for, and this is a, almost a, a natural evolution of a lot of artists. Um, and this is, I'm going to hook this into psychology. I mean, as young people, teenagers, adolescents, and young adults are feeling their way into the art world, it is absolutely natural that they pull from their own life experiences to begin with. And I have juried a thousand shows. And I've also, I was a uh, curator in in Fort Worth uh, for four years and worked with a lot of students and hung a lot of student shows. And the younger they are, the more likely they are to do autobiographical work. And as they get better and better at it, they start to free themselves from that and work through concepts that are a little bit more um, evolved, a little more complicated, a little more complex, and then they start to open themselves up to how they create their messages in ways that aren't necessarily so concrete. So you have um, you have artists who are able to still work in things that are political and even about identity that starts to really stretch the boundaries of figuration. Uh, into something else. And um, I would like to make sure, so there's, to me, there's an adolescence to what is happening in art right now that will naturally grow up, if that makes sense. Um, 
uh, and that's fine. That's just that's that's how things are. How much of it do you think is kind of connected to the past? I mean, the thrust of the past couple years with like you know more in more racial reckoning in America and the pandemic and all of this and our kind of social psychology of missing people. Oh my gosh. I mean, the urgency that people feel right now and their heart and souls every single day when they wake up is very real and artists are feeling it too. And there are a lot of artists, there are a lot of, let me put it this way. There are a lot of young people who did not see themselves in the art world until now. And they may have wanted to be, if they had been born 10, 20, 30 years ago, they would have been artists, but they didn't feel like there was a place for them. Right. But they see that maybe there is a place for them now. And so they're making these moves and one of the ways they do it is they're copying artists who have made similar moves, but who have really gained a lot of prominence. There's a lot of figuration and a lot of work by um, people of color who have who have reached the apex of their career, and um, that is that is an absolutely natural thing. Is people look for their role models and. Absolutely. And writers learn to write by copying other writers um, and their styles. So this is a natural progression. We're in the beginning stages of it for a lot of young artists who are breaking into the scene. The very best ones who continue to push their ideas will also continue to push how they present their ideas. So to judge anyone on what they're doing right this second, if this is their first body of work, is really not fair. What we need to do is watch and see what they do next, right? So what we don't necessarily want is art that's not really ready for prime time to be flooding the market. That makes me worried, not because I'm worried about I'm going to have to look at a lot of work that's not very good. What I'm worried about is the artists themselves who are going to be exploited by this system, uh, and they will be. And um, when work that's not really as good as it could be, if you just given these people another few years in their studio with really good conversation, they would have come up with a much better body of work. But some stuff's just getting out into the galleries because I think the galleries are desperate for artists of color to be making work or for young artists who are working specifically on identity. It can be about being female. It can be about being queer. It can be about being from a country that's not in the U.S., but they're, they're here now. But I would say... Uh, I don't, I don't, I mean, I don't know how bothered to be about this other than to say that I just think we're in the beginning stages of a new thing. Uh, I don't, I don't want artists to feel like they can't do something other than this. If this is what they feel like they have to do, and that's why they're doing it, then they, they either need to get out of the art thing, or they need to just come down to the fact that they're making propaganda. They're making artwork that's about an, an orthodoxy instead of stuff that's coming from them. Well, you know, I'm also thinking right now about artists who uh, have been uh, either active for a while, who are kind of turning towards abstraction or at least abstraction. When we talk about abstraction, I think I, I more tend to mean abstraction in that it may not be immediately recognizable if you just had a picture placed in front of you what's going on, right? Maybe you read the press release and you learn that a piece that a piece is inspired by XYZ and then you start to see it in it. But um, I mean kind of abstraction in I guess that more, what do you say? That's a traditional sense. Um, I'm thinking of people like uh, Rick Lowe, who was recently Art League Houston's Artist of the Year, um, you know, one of the founders of Project Row House, uh, very focused on kind of social sculpture. Like his work uh, that he's been making recently, it's inspired by domino games. And if you know that, you'll see kind of the patterns of like dominoes on the surfaces of his paintings and drawings. But if you just kind of come at it 
blank. It's their abstract, colorful, pattern-based. Again, the game of dominoes is like a game of patterns. Um, so they're abstract, colorful, pattern-based pieces. And him going from this very kind of real, tangible social sculpture into abstraction, bright, colorful um is a really interesting progression to be making right now in a time where figuration is getting a lot more popular. Or uh, another example, um, I feel like Robin O'Neill, who, you know, longtime Texas artist, uh, recently had a show at the Fort Worth Modern. Um, her early work was very kind of figurative-based graphite drawings of little weird, like, dads in sweatsuits. Uh, and now she's starting to use more color and is getting a lot looser in her drawings. It's still not completely abstract, but she's getting more abstract than the kind of pure figuration she, or like the Hieronymus Bosch-like figuration she was doing in the past. So these artists who, um, I feel like, like you're saying, who may not be at the early stages of their career, but are very solid, but who are very solidly mid-career are, are kind of able to you know, look at what they've done so far and then tweak that in accordance and see how abstraction can really um, contribute to their process. You know, it's everything's busted wide open, too, because kind of everything goes in some ways, although kind of what we would think of as like traditional high abstraction is not particularly hot right now. Um, although, you know, tell Oscar Murillo that or tell Mark Radford that or tell Rick Lowe that. Um it is. It is. It just depends on where it's coming from and the impulse that drives it. But uh, I, I think, um, again, I see what is just a very natural growth arc. I mean, most artists, again, they start with themselves and they start with also learning to draw the real world the way that it looks. You could just... Let's, I'm just going to, I'm just going to say, let's look at Picasso and where he started and then where he ended. And you see if you, I mean, you can extrapolate from that, that that's what a lot of artists do. They start very concretely and then they start to get into kind of, forgive me for saying it, but just kind of higher and higher ideas about what art is and what they can do with what, what's inside of them. Well, yeah, how and they so, want to communicate using it. They don't feel the need to anchor everything they do in in this sense of absolute kind of almost photographic and biographical reality. They find a certain kind of poetry and then they can move move past, again, anything didactic and move into something a little bit more transcendent. That's what artists are trying to do. These young artists who are dealing with figuration right now, if they're given the chance to do it and they aren't... Um, overly exploited early on and they don't get cynical they can push through and they can get there and some of them also will just become absolutely fucking kick-ass figurative painters and that's fine too um we need that too we need it all um but we need to let artists do what they're gonna do and we need to let them stretch out and breathe and um and the ones who want to stay figurative if they want to that's cool keep pushing it Keep pushing your ideas and keep thinking about why you're doing what you're doing. And, uh, and if, and if you want to do something else, then do something else <laughs> and don't let anyone tell you that you can't, um, because it's still coming from you and you and your voice and your ideas are still, they still matter. I don't know how many young people are listening to this particular podcast, but, um, I don't think in the next few years we're going to get too far away from what is happening right now where a whole lot of art is very much not just about the world we live in but the urgency of how we're feeling right now. I think art is going to be political. I think it's going to be 
about identity. I think it's going to be about climate. I think it's going to be about politics. I think it's going to be about uh, wealth disparity. Um, these are the urgent issues of our moment, and this is what artists seem to be making. I kind of feel terribly for artists who have made tremendous work about other kinds of things for a very long time, and they don't really have a place to show as much right now. If they feel that way too much, then they need to open up new institutions and show that work. And I don't, and I don't mean for that to sound radical. I'm saying I want there to be room for everything. With that, I think we can wrap up. Is there any final thoughts you have, Christina? My final thought is that it, if you are interested in art and you have been vaccinated, go out and start not just seeing art, but talking to people. It's time for conversations to be had outside of our homes and away from screens. The real conversations are happening in person. You're not going to have it. You're not going to have it on Facebook and Instagram. I'm sorry, you're just not. And I'm going to come down really hard on that. I think that social media is absolutely fucking wrecking civilization and it's going to wreck art if we let it. I I think it's hard to it's it's like a phone call versus a text. It's hard to convey tone. It's hard to convey all of those other things. It's also hard to treat human beings like human beings when it's mitigated by that. The incredible, cold, algorithmic codified distance that has been dictated by these platforms so sorry about that to leave it on this but i'm just like come on man people get together and talk to each other and if you want to deal with art show your art just show it you have ways to do it there's a million if you need social media to get people to show up that's fine but don't have the main conversations in the social media have the conversations in person it's time for that and with that thank you for listening this week Uh, If you are able to go out and go see some art, please go see some art. This podcast was recorded by Glass Tire and edited by William Saradet. Copyright Glass Tire 2021.